0: and your life is hidden with Christ in God, hallelujah, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I can't wait. Put to death, therefore. You spot the, uh, the change of tone. The, we've gone from these very positive encouragements to something that sounds a little less positive, and in a sense, we can look at this passage and sum it up by saying, get rid of sin in your life. We could sum it up by saying, yes, seek Christ that's a wonderful positive encouragement another encouragement put to death therefore these things go hand in hand uh, necessarily if you imagine um, a shepherd in the ancient world would have had his sheep and would have guided them to various different pastures may not have had um, the same system of fields and hedgerows and so on may have been slightly more nomadic and so a good shepherd We'll want to make sure that he encourages his sheep towards the good pasture. Come this way. Go over there. Eat this. This will do you good. Stay close to me. Let's go together. A good shepherd will also point out dangers. Don't eat that. Don't go close to that cliff edge. Don't tread in that. Stay away from this wolf. Stay away from this poisonous plant. A good shepherd will want to do both. Paul's a good shepherd, God is a good shepherd, and so he wants to encourage us with the positive things, pursue God, seek the things that are above, but necessarily hand in hand to also say, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. One commentator has said this, being heavenly minded does not mean living in the clouds. The believer who aims at the things above will be involved in an ongoing spiritual warfare here below as he or she puts to death sinful propensities and allows the new nature to find outward expression in godly life. So to seek the things above, it's not to live in the clouds, it's not to kind of deny reality. Someone who's truly heavenly minded is someone who is also engaged in what this guy calls ongoing spiritual warfare. There's some hard work to be done. There's some serious stuff to be done. If we're to pursue our heavenly call in Christ, we're also going to be engaged in this hard work of spiritual warfare, putting to death what is earthly in us. So, to unravel this message, to unravel this portion of scripture, this morning we're going to look at three questions. Uh, the first question, to kind of clarify what Paul is saying, what God is saying to us, the first question is who? Who is Paul addressing? The second question is what? What is he bringing to their attention in particular? And what is he telling them to do about it? And the third thing we're going to consider is, in the light of that, how? How do we go about ourselves doing what Paul is encouraging us to in these verses so the first thing is the who who is Paul addressing who is being addressed here may come as no surprise Paul is addressing the church Paul is addressing believers Paul is addressing people who have come to faith in Christ we already know that from the very outset of the letter he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Or brothers and sisters, it, it could be rendered probably. Um, so he's addressing people who've come to Christ. In, ver- in ch- verse 10 of chapter 3, he's addressing people who have put on the new self. They have put off the old self with its practices. They have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. These are people who have come to know God. He's not, therefore, talking to the world. He's not addressing the world and saying what's wrong with it. He's not writing to Christians to say, isn't it terrible what those people do out there? Isn't it really dark what happens out there? I'm glad none of us are like that. No, um, he's not, this is not a, a kind of morality lesson for people who don't yet know Jesus. This is an encouragement for people who've come to know Jesus. What's more, these are people who have been forgiven and they've been set free. He says in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. He's writing to to Christians, to believers, who didn't have an impeccable past themselves before they came to Christ. Um, Normal life was being described in in these verses. That was perhaps normal in a a society that didn't know God. They were first generation Christians. They hadn't had the... uh, Benefit of growing up in a Christian home or in a society which maybe has some remnant of Christian values in it. And so they've been saved out of that gloriously and wonderfully. Paul's concern then is not to say um, you need to keep some rules in order to still have God's love and favour, you need to keep these rules in order to earn. God's forgiveness. No, you've already been forgiven. You've already come to Christ. This is fantastic news. This is not about earning salvation or earning forgiveness. This is now about being who we are. Being who we are. Being set free from what once dominated, from what once enslaved, now living the life that God has for us. Paul's concern then is that the life the believers live now kind of matches up with what God has already done. It is, describes how the wrath of God is coming on account of these things. Because of God's holy anger against sin, what happened before is people had been, these Colossian believers had been earning the wrath of God for this behaviour. God had rescued them from that. God had paid every penalty. God Had saved them from that wrath, they were no longer subject to the penalty that their sin earned. They were free from that. So, having been freed from it, why go about doing the things that God didn't like, God was angry about in the first place? It's about kind of matching up with who God has called us to be in Christ, being who we are, free and forgiven and moving on, being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. We're called on a journey. We're called to be forgiven, but then also to head on a journey towards Christ and become more like him. So Paul is addressing the church. What does Paul want to bring to their attention? You'll notice there's a couple of lists that get mentioned, and we're probably going to focus on just the first one of those lists of things to highlight, bring to their attention, in verse 5. It starts like this. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which if you're reading the NIV will say lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which if you're reading the NIV will say greed, which is idolatry. So to start off, sexual immorality, it's not that one sin um, is worse than another in grand scheme of things. But this does seem to crop up in Paul's writings quite often. He wants just to bring this one to their attention, and sometimes it does seem to come first in the list. Sexual immorality seems to be uh, a catch-all term that describes basically forms of sex that are outside of marriage. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, Uh, Sex between uh, close family members who aren't spouses. Um, That's not an exhaustive list. I think that's probably a catch-all term for the very reason that if it's spelt out detail by detail, this, 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 and this, um, then with our hearts as they are, we might be inclined to read down a list and say, can I get away with doing such and such? Oh, it doesn't mention that. Maybe that's okay. The sense of this is, To to highlight an area, to throw off, to head towards purity, and not to kind of get hung up on where shall we draw the line. Having said that, obviously I gave a few things about what it includes. Adultery, uh, which I suppose needs no massive explanation. I suppose for the sake of children, what adultery might look like if it took place is your mum leaving your dad and going and living with another man as her husband, or your dad leaving your mum, going to live with another woman as his wife. That would be adultery. Fornication, word you don't hear a great deal now, um, has somewhat an old-fashioned ring to it. Basically means sex before you get married, and, uh, and other things as well. Um, you'll see from the list in general that it starts with Sexual immorality, impurity, a term that seems to go alongside that to describe behaviour, things that we do uh, with our bodies. But it goes on then to shift to maybe the thoughts and the attitudes behind those behaviours, such as passion or lust, evil desire. When Jesus was speaking to a great crowd, um, he didn't lower the standard on... Uh, purity. He didn't say, "You've heard it said, um, don't look at a woman lustfully, but you can kind of get away with it." He said, in Matthew and chapter five, verse twenty-seven, "You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery,' but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart." Paul here and Jesus there is then focusing not only on outward behaviours but what's going in on the inside what's, what's happening here what, what, are, what are the eyes looking at what, what is being fed what desires are being fed and these things need to be highlighted what comes following at the end of the list is covetousness or greed which could be understood in general terms but also in a specific way to, to relate to say uh, sexual immorality And right at the end, idolatry. And here we find something quite important to realise. The danger of opening up a subject like this is that Christians become known for uh, what shouldn't be done and the prohibitions and the things that are wrong and kind of wagging a finger at the world and saying that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong and that's wrong. Rather than actually saying God gives gifts to be enjoyed but they are just that a gift to be enjoyed at the right time if you receive a present it would at christmas time certainly in my mind it'd be slightly inappropriate if you unwrapped that before christmas day there might be kind of special arrangements but this christmas present needs to be opened on christmas day god gives gifts to us that should be unwrapped at the right time uh, and not before Idolatry takes a gift that God has given us and makes it into a new God. And so rather than giving God what he deserves in, in praise and serving him, we focus on one of his gifts and unwrap it at the wrong time. So there's the list. The second what, I suppose, is having identified what, what's on that list, what does Paul say to do about it? He says this, put to death what is earthly in you. This is saying something drastic, deliberate, determined. In some ways it almost feels like it wouldn't suffice to say stop doing it or try to keep these things in check. Perhaps wouldn't quite get the the urgency or the importance that Paul is bringing this uh, to them. And in that passage we read in Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to use strong imagery himself uh, when he's talking to the big crowd there. In Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, first of all, just in mentioning those scriptures and in the illustration I'm about to use, it's really important just to get across, that does not mean that the application point for today is to go home and uh, maybe cut off a limb or two, Uh, sorry, Johnny can't come to school today, the preacher told him to amputate his leg, Um, please, no. Obviously, both Jesus and Paul don't only pick up on behaviour that we do with our our body, but also on what's going on on the inside, the desires, uh, the passions, the lusts, the attitudes and thoughts. In a sense, yes, let's be uh, ruthless with what we do. We also need to be ruthless with the desires and the thoughts and get rid of those and cut those off as well. So something absolutely deliberate, determined and drastic needs to take place there is a guy there's a few people in fact not many thankfully who've been in such a tricky situation they've actually had to enact this or enact what jesus said in a very real way and i'll 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 try and skate over the the details um 20th of july 1993 guy called don wyman a bulldozer driver uh, in the united states uh had a plan to build his wife and son a new home, and to do that, he'd stay at work late to uh, to cut down some trees. So he'd be bulldozing in the woods along with colleagues, and then after the end of his day, he would go by, He went by himself to, to to cut down some wood. Unfortunately, what happened as he cut wood with a with a kind of manual saw is a big, mighty trunk rolled over his leg he is in the woods far from anyone else colleagues have gone and there's no one around he tries to holler for help but realises after a while this is just not going to work he tries to dig the earth under his his leg and gets to a certain point but then there's a rock that stops him getting any further Um, he tries to reach his saw to kind of hack away some of the tree, um, but can't do that either. And he, it dawns on him what is necessary to do. He realises his leg is broken, it's bleeding, his wife will not realise for several hours that he's missing, and you can tell what's coming next. He realises what he has to do. He has, I'll say this quickly, a small penknife, and he knows what it cuts it off in a few minutes. A few inches below his, uh, his knee. <laughs> um, God, you think that is amazing. He knew he had to do something drastic. That's the point. He knew he had to do something drastic. If he wanted to survive, he was going to have to cut this off. That was what Jesus was saying. Better to enter life with something missing physically um, than have your whole body but go to hell and experience wrath of God. So this guy, Don Wyman, understood Something drastic needs to take place. We need to be drastic uh, with what we do with our bodies. We want to honour God with them. And also with our attitudes, our desires and our thoughts uh, on the inside as well. So what we really need to do is be absolutely drastic with sin. Cut it off. Put it to death. Don't just kind of accommodate it, but absolutely ruthlessly deal with it. That's the what the third question, as I mentioned right at the beginning, is the how. How do you do that? Obviously, we don't just go about cutting bits of bodies off. How do we go about killing sin? How do we go about p- killing sin? For that, let's turn to book of 2 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy there. And uh, again, in no uncertain terms... Gives him a spot of advice in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. He says this So flee youthful passions. If you're reading the NIV, flee the evil desires of youth. Again, it speaks of a very deliberate, conscious decision to be made. Flee, peg it, run away. I should actually say that that guy in that story did actually survive. It's quite amazing that he not only managed to crawl back to his bulldozer, drive that down to his truck, get into his truck, drive down someone's hut to raise the alarm. Um, Within a couple of weeks, bizarrely enough, he was actually back at work. It all went remarkably well. Uh, He lived and uh, hopefully happily ever after. Um, So back to the how. How do we put to death sin? We need to flee. Wonderfully, the Bible gives us great illustrations of people who did actually flee. One of those is Joseph, who having been sold into slavery to the Egyptians, then came into quite a prominent position in um, Potiphar's house, a ruler in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife was attempting to seduce him a number of times. You can read it in Genesis 39. Uh, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him a number of times. And on one occasion, when she and Joseph were in the house alone. She made another approach to him, and Joseph didn't hang around. He fled. He left his cloak and he made a run for it. Uh, interestingly, I once heard an account of a leader within New Frontiers churches who had a similar experience and thankfully who made a similar response. Uh, he was working the last day of his secular job. Before then, starting to work full-time for church. And on the last day he went to work, one of his female colleagues came to him wearing extremely revealing clothing and literally attempted to seduce him. This guy didn't hang around either to see what would happen, but actually ran out of his office. Um, Maturity for us is therefore not necessarily saying I'm strong enough to to resist this. I can handle this. I can do this. I'm strong enough. And then to kind of actually hang around in a situation that could be enticing. Maturity is, I'm not going to wait to see if I will get enticed by this. I'm going to make a run for it. I'm going to deal with this and I'm going to deal with it quickly. I'm not hanging around, even if it looks foolish. I mean, if you had to run out of your own office from, from a colleague you kind of think in some ways that would seem foolish, what, what's he doing but no, something serious at stake he's just about to start ministry full time in the church don't want really to get compromised just before your very first day by kind of entertaining a relationship that shouldn't be entered into so he made a dash for it because we're not only kind of fighting some of the things that the world can present to us some of the temptations that the world brings. We're also fighting a potential tendency of our own heart. This is what James points out in, in James 1, verse 13, or 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, it's important because our hearts, because our desires can be enticed. That's the nature of temptation. It's important not to hang around. Um, as a teenager, someone was trying to uh, impress this upon me in no uncertain terms. Uh, someone who was kind of older and uh, for a while kind of took me under his wing and re- recounted to me a story when he had recently become saved, kind of in his early 20s, had been sleeping with his girlfriend, became convinced that it was important uh, that they stopped having sex, but still slept together. And uh, and so he woke up one morning and prayed to God, um, Lord, haven't I done well? Uh, I know that you don't want me to have sex with my girlfriend before getting married. Um, look, we've slept together and I've not actually touched her. Haven't I done well? This might not be a helpful illustration, but I'll give it a go. Um, it's like, think of the cat, if you've got a cat at home, sometimes cats are kind of wired to go and catch mice. They catch a mice, a mouse, bring it into the house, kind of on the kitchen floor, uh, Dead, clearly, or almost dead, kind of expecting some reward from its owner. I think no, that's foul, that's disgusting. We don't need you to do that, and you've just got to clear up this mouse. This guy was going to God saying, "How have I done well?" No. Okay, you might get half a point for resistance, but you get no points for wisdom, you thick plank. Anyway, that's a story you shared with me, <laughs> and uh, maybe one day on a podcast. He'll recognize himself (laughs) from what I've just said. That helped me, I have to say. That that did impress something upon me, and I can obviously recall the story now. Don't hang around. Don't hang around in situations. Sometimes it's necessary, like Joseph did, like that New Frontiers leader did, to flee from a person, to flee from someone. Maybe there can sometimes be um, what starts as just an appropriate friendship, and uh, we get on well, can then become, I'm actually, I'm going to talk to this person because my husband or wife doesn't really understand this issue. I feel I can relate more easily to this member of the opposite sex. Slippery slope. Slippery slope. Not to be messed with at all. Having said you flee from a person, that can sound quite tough if that's necessary then to flee, what, from your girlfriend or fiancé? surely you're pursuing a relationship together to actually flee from someone that you're developing that relationship with could be slightly bizarre well, let's put it like this not necessarily fleeing from each other but certainly choosing to flee from certain situations that might not be helpful Um, making some proactive decisions beforehand about how you're going to handle kind of uh, being alone together time is ticking on in the day, it's raining outside it's dark, there's kind of soft lighting and nice soft music, no one else is around and uh, is it time to go to home yet or shall I just stay over? It's important to make decisions before couples or whatever get into those kind of situations where actually it's therefore a lot more easier to be enticed. Have a chat about that and come to some decisions. Maybe that is what Paul also means when he writes to the, Rome, to the Romans, and in Romans 13, verse 13 and 14, uses the phrase there, which is translated like this in the ESV, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for it. Don't provide it with anything, but be ruthless. Even if that means fleeing from uh, a situation or from a person. Also, for other people, uh, in different situations, Important to flee from excessive loneliness. To flee from just always being by yourself. To flee, therefore, perhaps, for some, from cable TV. Broadband internet. Staying up late after your spouse has gone to bed. Even if you're thinking, well, I'm just watching Match of the Day. But what is your own heart like? Now, for some, match of the day, fine. That's not going to cause you to stumble. But if you are into channel hopping and you know, I'm by myself here, this may not be the safest place, then do something else. Find a decent book. Or just go upstairs and go to bed. If you need to flee from that, flee from that. Excessive loneliness can be something that can be a hindrance. So... We need to flee. That's the first part of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. So flee, youthful passions. He goes on to say the second part, which is absolutely vital. If we were just into fleeing, then in a sense our minds are still kind of focused on the things we need to flee from. And again, we could be thinking, do I really need to flee from this? And after a while, maybe the boundary, you know, we start thinking in terms of, where should, we, where should I draw the line? Can I get away with that? Can I, no, maybe not that, but this? Ooh. If we're just fleeing, it's still only half the picture. What Paul goes on to say to Timothy is, flee youthful passions and pursue. Pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We, we need to do both. So rather than saying to ourselves, uh, what can I get away with? Instead, we the better question to ask, ask ourselves is, is this helping me get to know God? Is this kind of um, helping me to stockpile positive my positive experience of my relationship with, with Christ and God? Is this helping me to grow in these things that Paul mentions in righteousness, in faith, in love? Can I give thanks for this? What are we going to pursue? So, some big questions to ask. What are you going to pursue? What are we? What am I going to pursue? If fleeing loneliness is an issue, what godly, encouraging, and appropriate relationships are we investing in? If loneliness is one situation that needs to be avoided, what's the counterpart to that that actually is going to help? And good to give that some thought. What relationships are we investing in? How hospitable are we to to other people? Do we seek other people out to encourage them and be encouraged by them? What areas could you could you serve in what? What activities can you get stuck into? What can you get busy with if kind of loneliness is something you need to flee from? If fleeing relates to uh, fleeing from lust or just getting into fantasy and uh, sort of evil desires, what godly desires are being pursued? Are your desires being affected by seeing what God says in His Word? What He wants us to pursue? These are the desires to feed to nourish to invest in what does God have for us what does God have for us in prayer what does God have for us we've just been hearing um, obviously just before I came to speak and Ginny shared that word about God's got fruits God's got fruit it's going to be a year of bearing fruits so we're not just thinking about the things we're fleeing from we're thinking what is God bringing us into what is God what has God got for us what adventures of faith does God want to take us on? What fruit does he want us to bear this year? In what ways are we going to get to know Christ more and more? If if we're kind of fighting and fleeing images on the one hand that are unhelpful, what other images are we replacing it with? Images of Jesus. Images of what he's done for us. I'm so glad that um, Ben chose that song um, kind of amazing love just again speaking of Christ's amazing love for us if we just focus on fleeing we can miss out on the fact there's some stuff to pursue there's a relationship with Jesus to pursue and enjoy get to know and remind ourselves again of all that he's done for us their desires to feed and to ponder this God didn't just call us into relationship with him So that we might flee from stuff. He called us into relationship with him, specifically because he had a purpose in mind. This purpose he describes uh, Titus chapter two and verse fourteen talks of God there um, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. For good works, when he writes to the Ephesians also, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what has God got prepared for us? We can answer that as a church. What has God got prepared for us? What do we want to head into this year? What does God want us to pursue in our relationship with Him and in our relationship with others, seeking to encourage and build one another up as has already been taking place this morning. So are we pondering the purpose of God in our lives? Are we pondering and kind of eagerly desiring the things that He says to seek? Eagerly desiring that we might prophesy, that we might speak in tongues. Eagerly desiring that we might pray for the lost and see them saved. Eagerly desiring That we might see uh, us as a church grow and grow, reaching into new areas, reaching into lives that at the moment are broken, but God wants to restore them. How does he want to restore them? By bringing us into that situation that we can witness to the power of God. God wants a church who are demonstrating that the gospel works, that the gospel is powerful, that the gospel is like a product that can be sold because it is ever so Effective, So that when people come in amongst us, uh, they're thinking, hang on, there's something different here. And sometimes people do. They'll come into a meeting like this or maybe um, when we have weddings here or other meetings. And they can think, I can detect there's something different about these people. There's a joy. They've discovered a treasure that I don't have. And that might even be you this morning. If that is you, don't make the mistake of thinking, well... I guess what I know I've done wrong and what's in me must disqualify me from this. I, I see all these people and I, it looks like they've got something so good. They've discovered something so wonderful. And sometimes I hear people say this. I just love to be in your times of worship, but it's not for me. I don't, I don't fit in here. I don't belong. No, God wants you to know the power of his love for you. God wants you to know that he can forgive you of whatever, that you don't have to attain some level of respectability to come to him. He draws you and says, no, I've chosen you. I want you. I call you. I love you. I want you to experience my love. Now, of course, when you come to me, it would entail some changes. I want my gospel to be evident in your life. That's the case for all of us who are believing in Christ. He wants the evidence of our faith to be in how we are, in how we live our lives. That it's not just a a head knowledge, a theoretical understanding of what Christ has done for me, but it's evident. It's evident in our attitude. It's evident in what overflows, what fruit comes out. Joy and life and peace. And it's evident in what we choose to cut off. That we're going to be a people who not only pursue God and all that He has for us. But because we're pursuing, we are fleeing from stuff that will just scupper the plans that He has for us. You know, sometimes you hear in kind of larger circles of a Christian leader going great guns, outpourings of revival, evangelistic messages where people come forward and save in their droves. Church leaders um, uh, you might even know of personally in your own uh, church life previously that would have seemed to have been going really strongly. How do some of them end up almost like on a spiritual scrap heap? Is because they've just started to entertain a relationship that they shouldn't have done. They just started to kind of maybe just make excuses. I, I get on with this person really well and uh, she is really helpful to my ministry I think it would be helpful if we just got some time together and what starts there leads onwards we want to head into what God's got so we want to be absolutely ruthless with fleeing situations, fleeing tendencies and desires you know God has created things good. The devil can't create anything. The devil can't create anything. So he'll take something that God has made, twist it, distort it, spoil it, ruin it, and he'll present that as like a legitimate lifestyle choice. A legitimate option. But it's like tasting ash biting into an apple only for it to turn into ash in our mouths. We are in uh, ongoing spiritual warfare. And we don't want to be casualties to that. We want to pursue what God has got for us. And therefore we're going to flee. We're going to pursue and flee, flee and pursue. Just in closing, Don Wyman, going back to our Woodcutter in the forest in Pennsylvania. Don Wyman was interviewed after his kind of horrendous ordeal. He said, what was going through your mind? How on earth did you come to make the decision that you, you did? He said this, I had a life and death situation. I have so much to live for that I did the only thing I could, I chose life. What was in his mind? He's got a wife at home. He wants to build her a house. He's got a son that he wants to see go to university and grow up. He had stuff in mind that he wanted to seek, therefore he was ruthless. It wasn't just thinking, I'd better do the right thing in this situation. I'd better do the right thing now. I'd better do the right thing for the good of mankind and the good of society. It's like, no, I better do the good. I better do this because I want to live. I want to head into the life that I believe God's got in store for me from this day on and not get sidetracked. Now, I hope this message has struck the right balance that you're picking up hopefully from me but also from God in his word that he is a good shepherd who wants good things, who wants good things and who gives good gifts to his children. But a good shepherd will say, come on, let's go this way. Don't touch that. Don't even go there. Cut it off. Follow me. Come with me. Be close with me. Don't stray close to that cliff. Don't stray near. I know what's over there. Don't even go and have a look. I'm telling you, it's poisonous. Come and follow me. And I, my prayer is that as a church, we're going to get hold of that. That we are, we're kind of willing to, yeah, pursue God, but not to kind of pursue God in a living in the clouds way, but all of us running together and being ruthless together. Sometimes doing hard work, sometimes doing something which might require pain. Okay, for now, I'm going to give that up. For now... I'm saying, I'm going to, have to, I'm going to unsubscribe myself from cable TV. Or I'm going to have to make a change here. I'm going to have to make some different decisions because I don't want to slip into this. God's got a lot for us. Let's pursue him. Let's flee sin. Amen.